Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Thank you. Thank you very much, <clears throat> Ambassador Wilson. I am really thrilled to be here, and I'm very much impressed by the presentation of Ambassador Hansen. He could have done a better job of just describing <clears throat> the evolution of the U.S.-Mexico relationship. It is also a privilege to be here at the Kalsen School of Management and to share these forums with the so respected Ambassador Jeffrey Capital. Uh, consider one of the best U.S. ambassadors to Mexico in many years. The title of the conferences of these, the United States and Mexico Partnership Tested, is very apt because the U.S.-Mexico relationship is at crossroads. And the decisions that we take from now on will impact the direction of both our countries and the lives of millions of people in years to come. We found ourselves uh, we find ourselves at a particular time in histories where facts and reality are being regularly contested by rhetorics in a way we haven't witnessed before in a long, very, very long time. This is why it is critical to continue openly debating the present issue that we face, insisting on facts and realities. And you students and academics are in a position of privilege to do this. If you look at the history of the bilateral relationships between uh, around the world, you will notice that there are a few bilateral relationships that have managed to do what Mexico and the U.S. did in less than a century. Transform the old patterns of enmity and mistrust into a strong collaborative and mutually beneficial relationships. And you saw what this, why this mistrust existed. It existed because we lost half of the territory. <coughs> internal divisions, first Texas, then what today is California, Arizona, New Mexico, parts of Utah, parts of Nevada, and parts of Wyoming. And we had always this mistrust towards the US. We were always trying to read second intentions. What do they want now? What do they want to get now? <laughs> when are they going to take profit or advantage? <coughs> But this was slowly changing during the 20th century. Mexico has always been a very nationalistic country. We, of course, supported the U.S. in key, uh, in key stages, as Ambassador Hansen said, not only with the Bracero program during the Second World War, but also we were the main suppliers of oil to the U.S. during the Second World War to complement its oil production when the Atlantic Ocean was closed for all the oil coming from the Middle East. And we also um, facilitated some of our territory for uh, military bases. It were not military bases, but planes from the U.S. could land there in the Yucatan Peninsula. This is not so well known, but it is coming out more and more when the papers are open to the public. So we were always there. And, but slowly, slowly, we lost this mistrust. And one of the changing moments was the signing of NAFTA. 
the economies of the North American countries. But it had far-reaching implications for people because it established a whole new set of relationships and an integrated economy that Ambassador Hansen has described so well. So from being isolated countries in which, which we were basically with national platform productions, we became a region, a common region, a common platform of production for the rest of the world. And there was an increasing exchange of people too. Of course, with NAFTA, there were winners and losers in the three countries. In general, NAFTA has had a very positive effect on Mexico, on the US, on Canada. But we have to recognize that there were winners and losers. Who were the losers in Mexico? The losers were the um, small uh, farmers. They lost a lot. They couldn't compete anymore. Uh, they were not able to be self-sufficient anymore. And that is why we found that after NAFTA, many Mexicans migrated through the US because they didn't have this possibility of having this self-sufficiency in Mexican territory. Also, another loser of NAFTA was the southern part of Mexico. While Bajio and the northern part of Mexico became really an industrial powerhouse with a very uh, vibrant automotive sector, aerospace sector, electronics, at the northern border in the Bajio. In the south and southeast in Mexico, we saw negative growth rate. And these, uh, these states were not able to be integrated into the benefits of NAFTA. We also saw some, and I will not talk much about the losers in the US because you may know better, but I was talking with uh, Congresswoman David Dingell, uh, Michigan. Without any doubt, there were losers in Michigan. There were companies that closed in Michigan and moved not only to Mexico, but to the southern states of the US. A lot of the auto plants moved from Michigan to Alabama, to Kentucky, etc. But as she told me, we were big losers, but now our economies are so integrated that it would be suicide to kill that integration. Just for you to know, the trade between Mexico and Michigan is 70 billion US dollars a year because of the automotive industry. The trade between Mexico and Michigan is bigger than the trade of the US with the whole of Brazil, or the same size. And this shows that even if Michigan lost a lot with NAFTA, they also gained a lot. And this shows the profound change that NAFTA brought to the economies of the North American hemisphere. So 25 years after its entry into force, the United States trade with Mexico has more than crippled, growing more rapidly than American trade with the rest of the world. Together with Canada, with Canada, we managed to create the world's largest free trade area in the world, compri comprised by 450 million people that turned North America into a trade powerhouse worth almost 
$1.3 trillion every year. And as Ambassador Hansen said, in the first six months of this year, Mexico has become the largest trading partner of the US. In that period of time, in these 25 years, Mexico embarked in a modernization effort that increased our competitiveness. A competitiveness that sometimes was based in the very low wages, which is something that we cannot accept anymore. We strengthened our institutional democratic regime, opening to more free elections, and expanded the social rights of the population. Mexico, and this is sometimes is forgotten, is now the largest Spanish-speaking democracy in the world. <laughs> and the 15th largest economy. And when I said the largest Spanish-speaking democracy in the world, just think that what we call the cultural education or the sentimental education of Latin America relies more on the influence of Mexico than any other country. When people said Latin America, oh, Brazil is the great country, is the greatest country, true. Brazil, in size and in population, is the greatest country. But the cultural influence of Mexico in Latin America and in the world is much bigger than Brazil, because we are the largest Spanish-speaking country. Because the, the all Latin America and the Hispanic population in the US sings with Mexican songs, sings Mexican soap operas, eats Mexican chilies, avocados, and and that is the influence of Mexico, the relevance of Mexico. Last year, Mexico elected its first center-left president in the history of the Republic, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, AMLO, who, contrary to the expectations that many had in the US that he was going to fight with the US and that he was going to turn away from the US, it has been the contrary. He recognizes that the level of social and economic integration made cooperation between Mexicans and Americans a necessity. We are tied by history and by geography. We recognize that and we have to work on that basis. But he also said that we have to address challenges that derived from the losing sectors of NAFTA. That is why he had put a special emphasis of investment and the development of the south and southeast part of Mexico. Because if we don't bring the south and southeast part of Mexico to the rest of the economy, then Mexico will not be able to prosper as it should. And the south and southeast of Mexico present very very specific challenges on infrastructure. Those are the states in which the concentration of indigenous populations is larger. The geography is very difficult. If you have traveled to Mexico, if you go to Oaxaca, to Chiapas, it's not easy. There are a lot of mountains. We have the second largest tropical jungle in the Americas after the Amazonian, the Lacandonian jungle. And then these states are more similar to the rest of the Latin American countries in the sense that they depend on one commodity. They are not really in industrially, they are not industrially developed, they are not 
as a sophisticated economy. So the states of Tabasco and Campeche depend basically on oil. And when the oil prices went down, their economies went down. Quintana Roo, which has been a success story, depends basically on tourism. Of course, Quintana Roo has grown quite a lot. It's the only state in the south and southeast that has been having great growth rates of about 6 to 7% every year. Uh, Chiapas depends basically from cattle and coffee. And when the coffee prices go down, the economy of Chiapas goes down. Uh, Oaxaca is even a more, more complex state because it, it, it is a basically self-sufficient state with no possibility of integrating itself until now to the global value chains. So the focus of President López Obrador on the South and Southeast has this rationale. Either we pull the South and Southeast out of the negative growth rates and of the, this lack of sustainable development, or the country as a whole will continue to uh, not to grow at the levels that we need. And the other three main areas in which AMLO has put emphasis is he, he, he thinks that contrary to Marxist theories that the accumulation of capital is because of the exploitation of the worker and the farmer, he says the accumulation of capital in Mexico in the last year has been because of corruption because very few people took advantage of the privatization mechanism and the privatization process that took place after we signed the NAFTA agreement. And it's a very clear example. In 1994, in the Forbes list, there was one Mexican billionaire with a fortune of $2 billion. Um, Ten years later, there were more than 12 families billionaires with I don't know how many billions for each time. And this is my personal opinion. I respect and I admire and I get along very well with Ingeniero Carlos Slim. But if we have one of the richest men in the world, the third or fourth, and 40% of the population in poverty, something is wrong with the economic model. And this is something that we have to address. And this is something that President Lopez Obrador has as a priority. So first priority, fight corruption and impunity. Second priority, fight poverty. But not poverty only through social programs, but poverty fighting inequality. Giving access to people, and not only economic inequality, but social inequality, cultural inequality, access to technology, etc. And these inequality of regions these differences between the northern part of Mexico and the southern part of Mexico. And of course, a greatest challenge is also insecurity and violence. That in President Lopez Obrador's uh, diagnosis is directly linked to the existence of corruption and inequality. So if we don't give young people the opportunity to integrate themselves into the Mexican economy, to either study or have a good paying job, how can you expect them not to be easy fodder for organized crime. So it is more or less easy to describe in a conference <coughs> the priorities and this, but it is very difficult to land them. And it is very difficult to change the model 
in which the Mexican economy and society also has been working. On the one hand, it has been very successful modernizing. If you go to San Luis Potosí, Querétaro, San Miguel de Allende, this fantastic. On the other hand, you see levels of poverty in the southern part of Mexico that are more similar to the, to the poorest countries in Africa than to the United States. So, but with all these changes, also anti-Americanisms in Mexico, anti-USA sentiment, once prevalent in the country, has faded away. And it is very common sight to see a lot of uh, American tourists feeling at home. And by the way, I think all Minnesotans are very much welcome in January, February, March. <laughs> years old in 1908. The Mexican Revolution started in 1910. She was taken to a ranch in the Huasteca Potosina, which is a place that is not easy to live. And she lived all her life undocumented in Mexico. One day the Mexican police said, oh, we're, you have to go back to your country. And she was saying, I'm more Mexican than any of you. lady of 180, red hair, green eyes. And she lived all her life undocumented because she left the United States very young. And then the Mexican Revolution, no papers all the time. So at, the at that time, she went many times to Laredo and crossed the border, but there were no walls, no fences, almost no control at the border. But, but you see, that's the story of Mexico and the US. So I am part American. <laughs> And, and I, that's why I also feel at home here, and that's why Americans feel at home in, in Mexico. So, the larger point I'm trying to make here is that behind the tales about Mexico that sometimes dominate the media these days, there is a thriving and globally competitive country whose people, communities, and trade are intimately tied to the United States. And the US today, could not be explained without the Mexico and, and the presence of the Mexican community. And more generally, without the presence of the large Hispanic and Latino community, which I say constantly and I repeat, we have been the past, we are the present, and we will be the future of the United States. So we have to work on that premises. Bilateral relationships are not always easy, but I believe that overall, the U.S. has benefited greatly from its geographical proximity to Mexico. Not because the, Mexico is now the U.S. first trading partner, but also because the jobs of 5 million American workers depends on U.S.-Mexico trade. 5 million. That means almost every single person living in Minnesota. Furthermore, thanks to the economic integration, the U.S. can compete globally too. On any given day, good crosses our border back and forth, increasing the productive capacity of the U.S. to export more goods and services to other regions of the world. There is nothing as an American car. There is nothing as a Mexican car 
There is nothing as a Canadian car. There are North American cars. Because each auto part crosses the border up to seven times, two borders. So that is how the automotive industry is integrated. That we train $1 million per minute. We train between Mexico and the US $1 million per minute. This doesn't mean that we are ignorant of the significant challenges or tests, as the name of this conference suggested, that we have a, a winding road ahead. <coughs> Mexico subscribed to the Wilsonian principles that paved the way for the creation of the League of Nations and then the United Nations and consolidated the liberal world order where still living. And we have been actively participating in the creation of international regimes that give us certainty in different areas as air security, maritime security, environment, law of the seas, etc. But Mexico is very much concerned that a United States in retreat and with a trend to, to be isolated can embolden nativist forces in detriment of the shared values of the world. It is difficult to understand that the country who was at the, the very fundamental country for this liberal order is now the country that is not believing in it anymore. For us, it's very surprising, it's very difficult, and sometimes it's getting very complicated to work together in multilateral forum. The second challenge is Migration, as Ambassador Hansen said. The way we think about migration is very different. We think migration is inimical to humanity. The current US government thinks that migration can be stopped. Migration will never be stopped. What we have to do is to have an orderly, safe, regulated migration. We also have different attitudes toward refugees. For many years, the U.S. was a country that received more refugees uh, from over the world because the U.S. is a very generous country. This year, the maximum of refugees that the U.S. government has said it was going to receive is 18,000. This year, in 2019, it is expected that Mexico will receive requests of asylum of refugees status for 80,000 people. So for the first time in many years, Mexico may be receiving more refugees than the United States. And I can tell you the capabilities of the two countries are totally different. Totally different. But also, we need to address with a common view the challenges of the Central American migration. To think that we can confront the challenges of refugees and migrants with enforcement and police measures, it, it is wrong. We can do it in the short term, but in the long term, we need to address the root causes of migration. And the root causes of migration is to address the challenges of climate change, drought, economic stability, economic opportunities, and insecurity in the Central America. We are already investing there. We know that the US has invested a lot of money and a lot of programs for many years. But now to suspend the aid to Central American countries is totally counterintuitive. 
So we want to work together in the U.S. administration to go again together to Central America. Also, we hope that in the near future, the U.S. Congress will be able to tackle a comprehensive immigration reform in the U.S. And that the debate that goes or takes or is the basis for that immigration reform should be based on facts and realities and not in ideology. And the fact and reality, the realities is to take into account the demographic profiles of the countries and the complementarity of labor markets. Everywhere I go in the U.S., I am told, Ambassador, we need workers. We rely on Mexican workers in the horse breeding uh, sector, in the dairy industry, this, and said, okay. But just imagine that for many years now, it's zero immigration growth. In a few years, Mexico will not be able to send more people to the U.S. because they will have more opportunities in Mexico. So we are having a profound transformation, and the legal framework that we have and the institutions that we have are not adapted for that transformation. And the populations of the U.S. will be aging more fast, faster than before without immigration. And the Mexican population is also aging. And you will be surprised that if you go to see the demographics of Central America, they are aging even faster. Now they have a lot of young people that are the ones that are coming here, but they are aging more faster. The third issue that I want to address as, as a challenge, as a test, is our common border. We have to change the perception of the border. <clears throat> because whatever we do with the border will have an impact in the perceptions of our overall relationship. The border is not synonymous with crime and violence. We have challenges of crime and violence that we cannot deny and that we have to address together. But the Mexican-American border is one of the busiest and most frequently crossed international borders in the world. Laredo is now the first port of entry of the U.S. It's not Long Beach. It's Laredo. We trade, as I said, one million U.S. dollars per minute. If you add the four border states of the U.S. and the six border states of Mexico, ten border states, if those ten border states were an independent country, they would be the third largest economy in the world. That is the border. So the, you cannot think that the border is lawless, because a border that would, a, a lawless border would not be as thriving as what we are seeing at the border now. And Ambassador Jacob can talk about this. But Tijuana, San Diego, it's almost an integrated city like Minneapolis and Paul. Uh, the Nogales, Ciudad Juarez, El Paso, and we know that we have challenges. We cannot uh, underestimate those challenges, but the border is an area of creativity and opportunity, and it should be an area of innovation, it should be an area that guarantees border security, but with non-inclusive technology, and with a flexible and agile border. Mexico is convinced that the security of the border is, is, is essential because it cannot thrive without the most basic security guarantees. However, while the security focus helps us see many things, what it hides is crucial. Our border is an environment of opportunity defined by social and commercial exchanges and common natural landscapes, the Sonora, Arizona, they said. 
the Rio Grande Bend Valley, and we have an obligation to keep them safe. The border is customs and immigration checkpoint, but it is a way more than that. At different times, the border is a marker of national identity, <coughs> a site of transport and trade, a home to binational, bicultural, and bilingual communities, and also a symbol of our economic stature as a future. If you follow what happened in El Paso after that terrible attack, you will see how people got together. And you, you will see the strength of that binational, bicultural, and bilingual community. Looking forward, we have the last, not the last challenge, but, uh, but a very important one. We hope that NAFTA's success, successor, USMCA, will pass the US Congress and will remain a strategic component of the economic growth of North America. I believe that economic, social, and cultural integration is so deep and decentralized. Just as President Lopez Obrador has said, that cooperation will be acknowledged even more as a true necessity for all. And I am optimistic, cautiously optimistic, that we have a window of opportunity to get USMCA ratified by the end of the year. It is up, of course, to the Speaker of the House to determine the timing in the negotiations that they are having with US Trade Representative. But as she has said many times, let's find the path to yes, and the Mexican government is really working hard to find the path to yes. How? Ratifying USMCA already in the Mexican Senate. We have done our job. And passing the most revolutionary and ambitious labor reform in the last, in the last 70 years. <coughs> to not only comply with, our, with one of the most important campaign promises of President López Obrador, but that can, those campaign promises are totally coincidental with the labor chapter of USMC. So we are committed to implement the labor reform, and we are committed to comply with the labor requirements in USMCA. According to several economic forecasts, including a special report made by the Economist Intelligence Unit, in 2050, Mexico will become the largest, the eighth largest economy in the world, surpassing countries like Italy, France, and the UK. So you will have a stronger partner for the future, not a weaker one, but a stronger partner. And in the case of China, I would say China is a very large trading partner for Mexico. But the investments of China in Mexico are almost non-existent. And you will ask, why? Because Mexico is a much more sophisticated economy. We haven't had the need of Chinese investments until now with a model in which China has been investing in Africa and Asia. That means taking their companies, their workers, their managers, no. No, because Mexico is a sophisticated economy. If you ask the American companies, 90%, 95% of the personnel is Mexican because they find trained managers, trained engineers, trained uh, scientists. So we have not been open to the Chinese model of investment. But of course, for the future, the issue of artificial intelligence and technology can change that. And how this can change? If the US understands also and collaborates with Mexico, 
own technology and artificial intelligence. Now Guadalajara is a big hub of information technology. For, for certain American companies, more patents are coming out of their offices in Guadalajara than their offices in China or Bangalore. So if we see ourselves as a common integrated economy, we will be able to better compete with China. We have to understand that. Uh, and we have to work together for that. So I will close. I will not make reference to the Mexican relationship with Minnesota because I know that Mark will do it. But I will close saying that it is up to us to define our relationships, not by the problems and challenges we face, but by the prosperity and opportunities we can create together in the near future and in the long term. And yet that is perhaps the biggest pending topic. How do we construct together a new narrative that actually reflects all the things that we can achieve together? How can we say we are here together? We are not only cousins, we are brothers, we are sisters. We are one family that can tackle the challenges for the future. Thank you.